This is the three P's. Posterity. Peace. Provision. The three P's. Posterity, the offspring of one progenitor to the furthest generation. All future generations. Peace, a state of tranquility or quiet. Security, order, harmony. A pact to end hostilities. Provision, the act of providing, being prepared beforehand to deal with a need or a contingency. Posterity, peace, and provision. We all resonate with these. I think it's safe to say that we all want these in our life. All of us want a future. I've never yet met anyone who says, yeah, I'm I'm happy to live my life, and, and that's that. Almost everybody I've ever interacted with talks about the next generation, talks about doing something with their life that might matter, making a difference in the world to the point that they might be Remembered. Have you ever walked through a graveyard and looked at the headstones? Most of them say something about the person buried there. Something about what they did. I thought it was quite poetic. Billy Graham's headstone, of course, was revealed to the world just these last couple weeks. A preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to say. I thought that was quite beautiful. All of us, I think, want to do something that will last. We want a future. Posterity matters to us. I have never met anyone who prefers conflict over harmony. If you were to ask somebody, would you rather live a life of harmony or a life full of conflict? Everyone would say, well, I, I prefer harmony over conflict. Seems elementary. Peace. We all want peace in our life. We all prefer harmony over conflict. And we all need to have our needs met. I was stressing about a more elegant way to say that, but I just couldn't find one. We need to have our needs met. Posterity, peace, provision, the three P's that we all need. And what's interesting is most people you know, including yourself probably, spend most of their life looking for these three things. And the great and tragic irony of the human experience is that so few people find them. Nikki and I this week have had interaction with a dear friend whose life is literally falling apart. We got one of those emails that you get sometimes where you get horrible news. And we got one on Friday morning. I was actually sitting down and writing this sermon when the message came through. And the only reason I saw it is because my computer was open to the scripture interpreting website that I like to use. And I saw the notification pop up. And you know when you go to those notifications and all of a sudden it's like you get tunnel vision and You hear a ringing in your ears, it's because your blood pressure is spiking. Because disaster has struck. And as Nikki went and met with his friend yesterday, as we reflected on it afterwards, we couldn't help but note the fact that this friend of ours seems to have been searching for something and not finding it. A future. Harmony. Provision. Most people spend most of their lives looking for these things and never finding it when all along they're to be found in friendship with God. We see this illustrated in a 
beautiful and difficult way in Genesis chapter 21. Take a look. I'm reading out of the ESV version. This is the entire chapter. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, Yitzchak. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation." Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Ooh, I love that part. Wait till we get there. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Fichol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? Abraham said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hands, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, then Abimelech and Fichol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. 
This is a big, beautiful, and difficult chapter. It's kind of like life. Big, beautiful, and difficult. It was a pleasure for me to wrestle with it, and wrestle with it I did. In fact, I've been wrestling pretty hard with the last several chapters in this book. These are not easy chapters to preach. To the point that when I sit down here to read you the chapter, I worry that I'm reading the chapter I read to you last week because I've spent so much time with the chapter leading up to this moment that I've kind of lost track of it. It's big, it's beautiful, and it is difficult, just like life. In this chapter, first it gets good after being bad for a long time, then it gets bad again, and then we find our way through. Let me summarize what happens in verses 1 through 7. Sarah has a baby, the Lord visits her. This is a beautiful moment. Hopefully you could hear the joy in her voice as I read the account of her words. She's just thrilled. God visited her as he said he would. And she gives birth to baby Isaac when her husband is 100 years old and she's in her 90s. In this sequence, we see Sarah getting a whole new identity. If you've tracked with us throughout this series, you know that her barrenness was the defining factor of her life. You may know what it's like, right? You may know what it's like to have a a pain, a hurt that defines your life. If that's you this morning, I want you to take great hope in what happens to Sarah. I want you to stick a pin in it like on Pinterest and go, wow, her life was defined by a problem and yet God came through for her. If your life has been defined by a problem, maybe change your name to Sarah for the next 35 minutes and let this wash over you. She got a whole new identity. All of a sudden, this woman who's been barren for more than 90 years is a mother. She says, who would have said of Sarah that she would nurse children? Can you imagine a woman in her 90s, the joy that she would feel learning to nurse a baby? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I'm a mom. You ever felt that way? You ever known a woman? who celebrates with great joy the first time she becomes a mom. Maybe you can identify with this as a mother. The great joy at knowing that you, in partnership with God, have brought new life into the world. A new being made in God's image and likeness to be His friend forever. You're a co-creator, literally, with the creator of the universe. This is your best moment And this is a woman who had been denied that joy for 90 years. She wakes up this day, and this day she's a mom. She gets a new identity this day. The point for us is beautiful. When God steps in, you get a new identity. You get a new identity when God steps in. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The immortal words, of course, of Newton, John Newton, in Amazing Grace. In light of this, I want to encourage you to learn what it means to live a life with no more yeah buts. Because you've been given a new identity in Christ, you can live with no more yeah buts. I'd love to do that, but, you know, I could do that, but, and often it's that pain from your past that rears its very ugly head. It tries to disqualify you from doing that thing that you're now called to do and in fact enabled to do because God in Christ has given you a new identity. So stop stopping yourself. No more yeah buts. You've been given a new identity in Christ, so live like it. You're like, how, how, how do I get this new identity? Well, you come to Jesus. It's pretty simple. 
The good news, the gospel tells us that Jesus, who is God the Son made flesh, has made a way for you to be restored to right relationship with God, who made everything that is, including you. And he made you to be his friend. And the reason that you may have felt disconnected from life for most of your life is because you've been disconnected from God. And you may not even know it, and many of your friends may not even acknowledge it. Yet they live a life of turmoil and trouble, never really figuring out, why is my life so screwed up? When all along the answer is so simple, your life is screwed up because you have been separated from the life of God. You exist to be God's friend. And because of your sinfulness, you are separated from God, who's holy and cannot tolerate sin in any form. So you're living at arm's length. When you're meant to be embraced, do you know people who live like this? You can sense this kind of disconnect in people. You ever met somebody like this? Everything should be fine, but nothing is fine. Why? Because the only thing that really matters, their relationship with the God of the universe, is out of sorts. And so they're out of sorts. And so Jesus, who's God the Son made flesh, has dealt with this problem of separation between God the Father and you. Because you see, he offered himself up on the cross. And as he hung there, God the Father placed on him the iniquity of us all. Your sin and mine, God the Father placed on God the Son. And he punished him in your place for your sin. So that disconnect that you feel, the moment you come to Jesus, it's gone. The moment you accept what Jesus has accomplished for you at the cross of Calvary, you will be set free from that disconnect that has defined your days. So if you're sitting here this morning listening to this and you know that that's you, you're like, I am disconnected from the divine life and I don't want to be anymore, then even as you sit here this morning, as you listen to me preach, you can turn from death to life. You can repent of your sins. You can say to Jesus, yes, Take me, I'm yours. Make me one of your kids. I don't fully understand everything this guy's saying, but I like it. Sign me up, Jesus. Adopt me into your family. Forgive me of my sins. Make me your own. You can do this even now. All you got to do is flip that switch in your mind. At some point, you're going to confess it. You're going to say, you know what? This is what I have come to believe. And you'll see your whole life transformed. Because you're no longer disconnected from God. When you do this, or when you see this happen for somebody you know and love, you ought to throw a party. You ought to celebrate. Because new life always deserves a party. Look at verse 8. What does Abraham do in verse 8? The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. He threw a party. Let me tell you, the patriarch knows how to party. Just his family would have been hundreds of people. Okay, his family and his household. Who knows how many animals they would have slaughtered? They would have been cooking for days. They would have partied all night. Okay, this would have been a shindig to end all shindigs. Why? Because he is celebrating new life. When you see new life in you, when you see new life in others, make a big deal about it. I was convicted this week that we need to get a little more joy in our Christianity. Yes, I was listening to black gospel. (laughs) And as I was listening, I was just convicted 
That I'd have a little more joy about the fact that I've been saved, that I've been brought from death to life. And I thought about how hard it is for we affluent Westerners to feel released from anything. Because when was the last time we were in bondage? So the only thing to do is to think on our sinfulness and think on our utter wretchedness without God and reflect on the fact that without God's grace, we're hopeless. Only when you feel hopeless is hope worth celebrating. So take care to make sure that you're not so accomplished that you lose your joy. You should be thrilled at every new day, thrilled by every new opportunity, grateful for every chance you get to achieve greatness for God's glory, your joy, and the good of the world. Thrilled. Have you been thrilled lately? Or ask yourself this, when was the last time something mundane thrilled me? I'm here to remind you this morning that God's people are thrilled. They throw parties. Why is Abraham partying? Because he has a posterity now. The first P has been fulfilled. He has a future. That thing that God promised him, a future and a hope, offspring and a posterity, it is now fulfilled in Isaac. You could say that it is now incarnate. God's promise has skin on it now in Isaac. Isaac to Abraham is the word of God. Small w, made flesh. God gave his word to Abraham that he would have a son, and that from that son would come a line that would stretch and be so vast that it could not be numbered. This is a day to celebrate because God's word now has skin on it, just like Jesus. Right? In Jesus, God's word becomes flesh. Now, the capital W word, the eternal word of the Father begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That eternal word becomes flesh in Jesus. That's what incarnate means. Did you know that? Incarne, in skin. We think incarnation is such a big theologically loaded word. It's not. It just simply means skin suit. The word of God is made flesh. This is what's happening. This is why Abraham is celebrating. What's really awesome about this is if you think about your status... As a Christ follower, what's your status? Well, your status is queenly. Your status is kingly. Why? Because you're seated in Christ with God in heavenly places, to quote the New Testament. So if you're seated in Christ with God, you are literally seated within the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you're seated with God in Christ even now, as you live here with skin on, you are literally the promises of God walking around in fleshed. Do you see? You're in Christ. And so all the fullness of the Godhead that lives in Christ, you're connected to that. In fact, you are in that. And so as you live here in your daily life, Walking around the city of Guelph, you're God's promises in skin. There's a wonderful hermeneutic here for living clean. Have I ever asked you that? If I haven't, I will at some point. I'll say, how are you doing, living clean? I often get this like, really blank stare. Like People aren't asked that very often. Living clean, baby? You know, how are you doing, Todd? You know me, I live clean. Right? I often say that. There's a hermeneutic here for living clean. Right? You are God's promises walking around in skin. 
I love this hermeneutic. This hermeneutic has nothing to do with legalism. Right? You're not trying to live clean because you're legalistic. You're not trying to develop a system to help you live that way. Right? There's a reason here for living clean that's got nothing to do with fundamentalism. Trying to reduce Christianity to a few fundamental truths that you must not violate at any cost. There's a hermeneutic here that's driven by opportunism. I want you to see this. Do you see it? Because you are the promises of God walking around in skin, you have the opportunity to be Jesus in flesh in a lost and dying world. You have the opportunity to be the peace of God in a world at war. It's a great privilege of following Jesus. I want you to see this. It's not just about a ritual. It's not just about a habit. But it's a sacred trust where the life of God actually indwells you. And as you live in this world, the life of God moves from you into this world in a powerfully redemptive way. I mean, you are a literal representation of this promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. You are that promise walking around. So the encouragement for you this morning is to get out there and live like it because the world is a dark place. We see that in our text today. Consider verses 9 through 14. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she'd borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman should not be heir with my son Isaac. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for, though, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he's your offspring. So Abraham arose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This is just plain awful. I preached this passage a few times in my life. So my sweet wife, who's been with me for 21 years, has heard it preached a few times, so she knows what's coming. So literally last week she was like, oh no, it's Genesis 21. I hate this chapter. And why do we hate this chapter? We hate this chapter because of this scene. Where the ugliness of life rears its head. Big parties going on. And Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. Now, we need to remember that Ishmael was 16 years old at this point. He's a fully grown man in that culture. And he wasn't just laughing. In the Hebrew it says he was mocking. Has that ever happened to you? You're talking behind somebody's back and somebody sees you doing it. You're mocking somebody and someone sees you doing it. That's actually happened to me. I was like making a face about somebody and somebody saw me. I was like, oh boy. I had to repent. It was terrible. Right? This is what's happening. Sarah's not having it. Right? Ishmael's mocking must have been pretty significant. He must have been belittling this new baby boy in such a way that it set Sarah off. Cast out this slave woman with her son. Cast her out. What the Hebrew word is here? Cast her out? Glosh. 
From that, we get the modern Hebrew equivalent, divorce. It's the first time divorce shows up in the Scriptures. Suggested by the matriarch. Grosh. Divorce this woman and her son. Cast her out. For her son shall not be heir with my son Isaac. That's sibling rivalry, but writ large. This is family dysfunction to the nth degree. This is the kind of thing poets write about and novelists use as source material. Maybe you've experienced this kind of ugliness in your family life at some point. When family turns on itself, what's happening here? Cast her out. Divorce her. Verse 11, and the thing was very evil to Abraham on account of his son. Yes, the word is evil in the original language. The thing seemed evil to him on account of his son. We sometimes forget, because we read this casually, that Abraham loved Ishmael. His 16-year-old boy, he loved him. This is a rock and a hard place we do not want to be caught between. Between your first wife and your beloved son of your second wife. And your first wife is saying, cast them out. You can bet he had a sleepless night that night. Because he loved his son. This is super dark. This is human rivalry and vengeance. We see here evidence that Sarah's been holding a grudge for 16 years. We're reminded here that since the fall of Adam and Eve, since sin and curse became normative for us, the world has always been an ugly place. Why is the world ugly? Because we're ugly. And we do ugly things to each other. The teachable point from this is, in Christ, because you're a new creation, be beautiful in Jesus. Right? The ugliness of life may try to arrest you from time to time, And because you're in Christ, you have the ability as you are in Him to step on the head of the serpent and to keep moving forward. Determined to be beautiful in Christ this week. What's it going to look like for you to be beautiful at work, in your circle of relationships? Be beautiful in Jesus. Counter-program the ugliness of everyday life by being and living the loveliness of Christ in the midst of our ugly world. My life verse speaks to this, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights as you hold out the word of life. Friends, our text this morning encourages you to live as peace in a world at war. And as you struggle to do that, because it will be a struggle, I want to encourage you this morning to remember that peace is ultimately and only found in God. Look at verses 12 through 14. Peace is ultimately and only found in God. Abraham's all upset about this. And then God steps in. What does he do? He says, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, put it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Right into Abraham's consternation. You can bet that it was deep. God speaks. And he says, do what she says. He speaks into the darkness of Abraham's moment. And he shows his friend a glimpse of the long game. He gives him a why. He says, for in Isaac shall your offspring be named. He reminds him of the covenant. Right? I don't believe he's endorsing here Sarah's ugly behavior. But he is showing Abram a redemptive seed that lies in the midst of this horrible situation. Remember I told you that in Isaac shall your offspring be named? God has the long view, the big picture in mind. And he's being kind to his friend, but giving him a glimpse of the big picture. Look for that next time you're in trouble. Right? Your trouble will be fairly limited. It'll be fairly tactical usually. You're worried about the next three, four, five, six steps. Okay, notice when God shows you the big picture again. Gives you a sense of the 30,000 foot view of what's truly what. As a means of helping you to take the next step through the ugliness. For in Isaac shall your offspring be named. Keep the big picture in mind. As you work to find peace with God in the midst of a world at war. Remember that God is. Remember that God is good. Remember that God made. Remember that God saved Remember that God is redeeming. Remember that God will renew. Remember that ultimately God will reign. And remember this. In Christ, you're His best friend. That's powerful. You're His best friend. Knowing, believing, acting on that is the only way you'll be able to endure horrific things. Hear me, friends. Knowing, believing, and acting on the fact that you are God's friend in Christ is the only way you'll be able to deal with horrific things like sending your wife and 16-year-old son away to certain death in the wilderness. This is what happens in verses 14 through 21. In verse 14, he gives them some water and bread and sends them away. It's very important to appreciate the gravity of the Hebrew here. Vayishlacha is the Hebrew word. Yishlach means to cast. We use it when we're casting a spear. And when you cast a spear, you do it with vigor and often intensity. Right? You know, there's, there's, there's my spear cast. Right? Vayishlacha. <laughs> cast her away. It implies to me that she didn't want to go. He had to cast her away. Casting a javelin. It's horrible. She wandered, and in the Hebrew, strayed in the desert. She got lost. And she was so lost that they ran out of water. And they were so lost that they were about to die. And so again in the Hebrew, the Hebrew writers love to echo language. She casts Ishmael into the shade of a bush. Same word. Beautiful, dark, horrible poetry here. Abraham casts them out. And as they're about to die, she casts her son under a bush. Her 16-year-old son, who by this point is probably twice her size. He's so gone that she's the one who casts him 
under a bush. And then she goes and sits a bow shot away because she can't bear to watch her son die. This is awful. This is dark. This is miserable. And as she sits there, she lifts up her voice to wail. So look, if you ever find yourself in that kind of a dark situation, know that you're not the first person to ever experience that kind of darkness and misery. It doesn't belittle your experience. Okay? It doesn't suggest to you that you should cast it aside and ignore it. But it does remind you that you're not alone. You're not the only one. And I know that one of the darkest things about suffering is when we feel isolated. We feel like we're the only ones who have ever suffered in this way. And so remember Hagar sitting a bowshot's length away from her perishing son, wailing in the desert, alone, bereft, and moments from death herself. And God heard. Verse 17, And God heard. And he speaks to her and he says, Hagar, what's wrong? I love it. The Lord often asks these seemingly silly questions. Can't you tell? What's wrong? Don't be afraid. I've heard the voice of the boy. The lesson to us is beautiful. God is listening. And moreover, God is involved. Even in your darkest hour. So like you may not be in your darkest hour today, but may you remember this story next time you find yourself there. Remember Hagar and her dying son. And remember that God hears and God is involved. God will never leave you alone. Behold, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5, quoting Joshua 1.5. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm here. Tells her to get up, grab your son, hold him firmly by the hand. And then beautifully, in the English it says he opened her eyes. In the Hebrew it's even more powerful. In the Hebrew it says he unclosed her eyes. Receive it, church. He unclosed her eyes and she saw a well. I once was blind, but now I see. Do you hear the resonance here? Do you see it in the text? Do you remember the hopeless and lost people we talked about 15 minutes ago? who though their life appears to be completely in order, are absolutely disconnected from the divine life, and they have no idea why nothing ever seems to satisfy? It's because they have closed eyes. They're blind. God needs to open them up, like he did with Hagar. She's right there in the desert, and obviously the well is nearby, but she can't see it. Until God uncloses her eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. Friends, remember in your despair that God is an eye surgeon. He opens blind eyes. In fact, Jesus, when he's giving proof of his Messiahship, says the blind see as proof of his Messiahship. He opens blind eyes. He is an eye surgeon. And he will see you through. Even when you find yourself a stranger in a strange land. And I'm almost done. This is the story that's contained in verses 22 through 34. Abraham, a stranger in a strange land. God's going to see you through, whether in your moment of darkest despair, or whether you're just feeling disconnected because you don't belong. You ever feel that way? Especially as a Christ follower, like, I don't really fit in. I'm not fully secular like many of my friends. 
and I'm surely not as sacred as I'm going to be someday. I don't feel like I qualify for heaven's gates today, but I know that I'm following Jesus. I don't know. Do you ever feel that way? Like, I don't know where I fit. Okay, so be encouraged. If that's you, patriarch felt the same way. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, and the commander of his armies seem to suggest he may have showed up with his army. They show up and they ask Abraham to promise to be kind to them. And as I read this, it occurs to me to think, why would a king be afraid of a shepherd? And the text is clear. Why? Abimelech says to Abram, God is with you in everything that you do. Friendship with God is the most important factor in building a successful life. This is what Abimelech zeroes in on in Abraham's life. It doesn't say you're a great herdsman. It doesn't say you're a mighty warrior. Even though, remember, he defeated the kings of the north, which is 318 people. It doesn't say you have a beautiful wife, although we know that he does. What does he say to him? He says, God is with you in everything that you do. Friendship with God is the most important thing. Is your life leveraged that way? Think about it. If friendship with God is the most important thing, does your life need to change in any way to reflect that great truth? Leverage your life that way. And learn to live a life of grace. Why? Well, because even a heathen king knew that grace was the secret sauce. Look at verse 23. What does he say? He says, deal kindly with me as I have dealt with you. Kindly. Of course, the word here in the Hebrew is chesed, which is the word for grace. Show me grace as I have shown you grace. Deal kindly with me. Swear to it. And Abraham says, all right, I'll swear. But I want you to take these seven ewe lambs. And Abimelech's like, why? As proof. Proof of what? That I dug this well. Because there's a dispute going on between these two over a well. Why would they be fighting over a well? Because in this desert region, a well meant life itself. Provision. Without a well, you can't live. You want to talk about needing something? Try raising a family based on herding sheep and goats without a well. You can't do it. And Abimelech's men had taken this well from Abraham. So Abraham says, yeah, I'll deal with you graciously, but take these seven lambs as proof that I dug this well. This is beautiful. For all those of you who are motivated to work, knowing that you've been shown grace, but you're still motivated to work, so was Abraham. He says, yeah, I'll show you grace, because God has shown me grace, but let's do some business while we're at it. Take these seven lambs as proof that I dug this well. Very cool, right? doesn't mean that you have to stop doing everything you can to build the life that God has called you to build just because you're amazed by grace. You're amazed by grace. You're doing the right thing. You're giving grace because grace has been given to you, and you're working the problem. Dig a well, claim it, plant a grove, and worship Jesus. It says in the end of the passage that he planted a tamarisk tree. But again, the Hebrew is better than the English Because in the Hebrew it says he planted a grove. And why is that better than planting a tree? Because you can plant a tree in one moment. But to plant a grove takes a while. 
And we see at the end of the passage that Abraham actually dwelt in this region for a long time. He knew he was going to stay a while. So he dug a well, he claimed it, he planted a grove, and he called upon the name of the Lord. He worshipped God. Here we see a great reminder to us to do the same. Put a smile on your face and get to work. Why? Because your future is secure in Jesus. You have a posterity. So wake up tomorrow with a smile on your face because your future is secure. You're like, we're going to be all right. All right? Your future is secure, so put a smile on your face. Get out there and do the best you can. Why? Because you don't have to strive anymore. Why? Because you have peace with God. And because you have peace with God, because of what Jesus has done for you, you can have peace with others. When people wrong you, you can turn them the other cheek. When they sue you and take your tunic, you can give them your cloak also. You don't have to let them own you anymore. You don't have to let them live rent-free in your heart and mind. Right? Someone wrongs you, you can let it go, let it go. Right? Only in Jesus, though, right? Because if there's no Jesus, no grace, no forgiveness, then we want to keep a careful account of all the ways and times in which people have sinned against us. But if the story of Jesus is true, we're not in that business anymore. Because we know that all of our sin has been cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So we keep no record of wrongs anymore. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere that love keeps no record of wrongs? Yes, it does. Doesn't the Bible also say that God is love? Doesn't the Bible also say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? You can only do this because you have peace with God in Christ. So get up tomorrow and put a smile on your face. Knowing that just like the well at Beersheba, God is providing for all your needs. Beersheba, the well of seven. Seven ewe lambs, Be'er Sheva, the well of seven. Be'er Sheva still exists to this day. You can go visit it. Evidence of God's provision. Didn't God say to Abraham that his people would be as numerous as the stars in the sky? Didn't he say to Abraham that he was giving him that land to his descendants forever? Don't his descendants still live there today? And aren't all Jews and Christians ultimately sons and daughters of the matriarch and patriarch? Yes, we are. So you can see here, hopefully, that God is good on his word. He's going to give you posterity, a future. He's going to give you peace. In fact, he has given you peace. And just like Beersheba, the well of seven, he is providing for all your needs. <clears throat> so for now, put a smile on your face and celebrate the three Ps until that day when you awake in your future at full and perfect peace in a city that doesn't need wells because the river of life flows through it. And everybody said, Amen.